Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Lucas Mann is the author of Lord Fear and Class A, Baseball in the Middle of Everywhere. His essays have appeared in Guernica, BuzzFeed, Slate, and the Kenyon Review, among others. He teaches creative writing at UMass Dartmouth and lives in Providence, Rhode Island with his wife. Joy Press has been writing about TV for more than 15 years. Her latest book, Stealing the Show, How Women Are Revolutionizing Television, is a definitive look at the rise of the female showrunner. She has contributed to publications such as New York Magazine, The New York Times, Vogue, and Guardian. She lives here in LA. We're delighted to have both Lucas Mann and Joy Press with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. Hey everyone, um, thank you so much for coming. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here, and thanks to Joy for being here. Uh, I have to be good to like talk about some with a pro, you know, uh, as opposed to whatever this is. Um, <laughs> this is uh, the last like scheduled book tour thing that I have, and it's it feels appropriate to be in in LA for it just today. I saw Jax Taylor, who is a reality star who features in this book, drive past me. Um, and I also went to Lisa Vanderpump's dog clothing store uh, and purchased a jacket for my dog. Um, so this, yeah, this feels right. Um, before we talk, I'm just going to read for like 15 minutes. Um, the book is kind of a hodgepodge of, of uh, different stuff, some of it more like personal essayistic, some of it um, more uh, scholarship or criticism, I guess, um, which for the purpose of this book counts as just sort of like very detailed descriptions of things that happen on reality shows. Um, and then there's some sort of journalistic parts as well. Um, and so hopefully I'll read something that gives kind of a sense of, um, of all of that. Um, and one thing to know is that a lot of it is sort of epistolary, epistolary, and written uh, to my wife, sort of talking about these shows with her. Um, okay, so I'm just going to read. Cool. Robert Galinsky makes characters for a living. People come to him as themselves, leave as something a little more. Galinsky invented and still runs the New York City Reality Television School, the first and only of its kind, preparing hopefuls for their cattle calls, like a Lee Strasberg reconceived for 21st century ambitions. When I meet him, he's guarded. The only press coverage he's ever gotten has been brutal, but after I tell him sincerely that I find his critics to be pearl clutchers, he becomes animated and jumps right into telling me about one of his best students. There was this girl I had come in, he tells me. She walked with a cane and she had a service dog. I asked her, who are you? She said, I'm the girl who has a prescription pill addiction because I'm mentally ill. She asked me if that was okay, and I asked her if she was okay with it. And she said, oh yeah, it's true, that's what I'm bringing to the table. And so we went with that. Glinsky finishes his anecdote with a proud shrug and leans back into a leather couch. We're in a coffee shop in Alphabet City that seems to serve as his home base. He comes out of experimental theater and improv speaks in those terms, wears jeans with flip-flops and red sunglasses that are a bit of a personal trademark. The barista kids know he always orders a macchiato. For a long time, he was just an improv coach. He started teaching reality when an Argentinian dog groomer called the number on his website and said he had a month to prepare for an audition for a show that would end up being called Groomer Has It. Galinsky lets that name hang out there like I'll recognize it. Remarkably, I don't. But no matter, if I'd seen the show, I would have seen Jorge become the star. Out of all the groomers, it was Jorge whom everyone wished good things for. He played the whole damn season from hero position, just like an improv game, the way Galinsky taught him to, and he killed it. He didn't win the show, but he won affection. He proved to be watchable, and after his season, he landed a role on TLC's Extreme Poodles. 
He was never the guy who threw the glass at the wall, Kolinsky tells me. He was the guy who went up to the glass thrower and said, don't do that. Why'd you have to do that? What are you feeling that made you do that? Galinsky figured out pretty fast that the same principles he'd always taught improvers applied to reality shows. That willingness to constantly stoke the story forward, that in-the-moment fearlessness, sustained commitment above all else. A common misconception among people who deride reality performers, he tells me, is that nobody's interested in the ones who don't get into fights, that they provide no intrigue. The truth is, and any seasoned on-the-ply performer knows this, if you jump into the middle of a fight to break it up, you become a hero, or you become someone trying to be a hero, and as long as it seems genuine, everyone wants to see someone try to be that. I agree with this, and then we both try to come up with that F. Scott Fitzgerald quote about heroes, but we can't quite remember it, so we go back to TV and what makes for a great performance of self. We speak of Rodney King breaking down on celebrity rehab, Galinsky's favorite of the shows, and the guy from Taxi, and the drummer from that grunge band. They were so fucked up, these men. They were so pained, and they had been pained for so long, telling the story of their pain, like every day of their lives had been an audition for that moment, they could finally be that pained for an audience. I don't know if you should exactly call it talent, Galinsky says, but yeah, it always helps if they've got some really fucked up lived material to draw upon. That's a scab that he can pick at, help turn into the blood that an audience tunes in for. We're back to his pill-addicted, cane-using pupil. I asked Galinsky why she wanted that to be who she was on a television show. And did it work? Galinsky can't remember, but he's pretty sure she hasn't made it on to whatever show she wanted to get on. Doesn't matter. Those producers must be insane, he says. And the important thing, anyway, is that she went into her audition clear-eyed and armored. She would be an active storyteller. She would be the one valuing her trauma, valuing it enough to lead with it as opposed to letting some producer ferret it out and then define her with it. I asked Galinsky if he's proud of that anecdote. It's a leading question and gets the expected answer. He helped in his own way and in his own view to give this woman some combination of the three qualities that any teacher wants to provide to their students. Authenticity, confidence, power. He tells me he teaches two classes at Rikers Island and he tries to provide the soon-to-be-paroled with the same qualities as the soon-to-be-on-TV. We sit silent for a moment, and I consider the two neat, though flawed, parallels he set up. Reality performer as prisoner, reality show as the world, which makes him some combination of shrink, parole officer, and career counselor. This all smacks of new-agey self-empowerment in a way that would ordinarily make me uncomfortable. It still does a little, as we sit in the kind of coffee shop that guys like us always sit in, drinking our macchiatos and sneering about shows like CSI because they have no life, no guts to them. Guts, we agree, come from people like Kalinsky's pill-addicted, cane-using student. He prodded her to reveal to a circle of fellow wannabe stars in class the tagline that she would put on her life, and regardless of its manufacturedness, it worked because it was nakedly pained, because it made you worry for her or tisk at her. And this exercise prepared her to repeat that story in an audition, to repeat that story is the official one, recorded, hopefully broadcast, and commodified. If she wanted to be that brave, Galinsky says, and he leans forward on brave like he really means it. If she wanted to be that brave, then good. She was ready to tell her story. Brave is a tough word to accept, I think, and bravery a tough concept. The lines between bravery and arrogance or ignorance or stupidity or worse, desperation, Sometimes it's hard to trust that those lines are there. But what else to call such an act? To put a name on yourself that marks you a freak, or an asshole, or a reclamation project, and then to step in front of a blinking red light, open source material for the producers to do with what they will. Maybe I'm using bravery to describe what is really the internal calculation of how much attention one wants, or sometimes believes that they need, and how much one is willing to risk to be seen. But I want to be seen to be known somehow. I dream of it, and I've never risked anything like that. And so that act of risk makes this woman at least a little extra deserving of whatever it is that she wants. And whatever she wants seems less important in the face of what she'll do in the service of the wanting. It's not the car wreck people are looking for, Galinsky says, and I'll admit this sounds a little rehearsed. It's that moment when the car wreck is inevitable, and we're wondering if someone will survive. So the camera turns on. 
crash, and then... <clears throat> Ask me for a tragedy and I'll point you to Rob Kardashian. I can't imagine it's easy to be younger brother to Courtney, Kim, and Chloe, older brother to Kendall and Kylie, each one so forceful and beautiful and impervious to wilting. Even in the earlier days, the happy times, Rob always stayed at the edges of the screen, darting into scenes as a gentle foil or affable peacemaker. He operated as a sort of cipher for vaguely appealing normalness, often doofy and jovial, occasionally pouty, typically vain, always incompetent but sincere. I'm not the first person to argue this, but to say that the Kardashians' success is superficial is a disservice. They elevate superficiality. They are so good at it, so committed, so fully and captivatingly bared, so productive. They make no effort to make it look easy. It can become exhausting to tune into. Not Rob. Rob is attrition and apathy. Rob is trapped in the way that most compelling characters are trapped, in the way that I often feel trapped. Rob changes in directions that he does not want to change, and all of it is seen. Let me just admit this right away. I like to Google Fat Rob Kardashian to look at the image results. You know this. I think you do it too. There are many results. If you wanted to, and I think someone should, you could make a collage of these images that runs around all the walls of a giant gallery space, tens of thousands of images with no break in between, many of them almost the same but not quite. It would be as though he were never not viewed, like a flipbook of a life spent flaunting and hiding himself at the exact same time, his eyes always peering out from under a baseball cap to see who is looking, and it's hard to tell whether he's checking to see if he's safely alone or checking to make sure that someone still cares to watch. Many of the pictures come spliced next to his early shots, the ones where he's shirtless and celebrating something insignificant in a horizon pool, tattoos dotting his muscled side abs like gum splotches on a cobblestone street, and then there is narrative, ju there is narrative just in this juxtaposition, a tragedy because look, he used to be one way, and look, now he's another, and look, it's still happening, and we get to watch him face it. I love to watch him face it. I think Rob and I are the same age. That must have something to do with it. He has been on television as himself for the exact span of time that I have loved you, and I have so badly wanted you to see me as the narrow, nubile, carefree kind of beautiful that he used to be. He used to cavort in his shots. That's the best word for it. We used to watch him just sort of hang around the family mansion, 23 and still living at home, eating a banana or drinking a beer, winking at the camera in a way that read less obnoxiously cool, more endearingly incompetent. He always seemed a bit adrift, a bit bored, and I took comfort in seeing somebody enact this condition successfully, one that I felt but could never accurately convey. He seemed not performatively ecstatic, just happy enough, happy in a way that is unnoticeable unless someone is really watching, and of course we were always really watching, and there was pleasure in seeing him exist as the least remarkable person in the room. Now when we watch him, we see the way he tries to hide his enlarged self, see his family speak about him in whispers with cruel worry. We talk about how long ago it was that Rob cavorted, and it always feels at least a little bit profound to point out the way time passes, how ominous that can be. We were still living in Iowa the first time Rob broke down in a scene that had clearly been orchestrated for a breakdown. Family therapy held in what looked to be a vintage furniture showroom, complete with ornate velvet couches and fur blankets draped over mid-century chairs. Rob had on a black baseball cap as would become the norm, presumably to hide the creeping baldness, and an oversized black hoodie to hide everything else. He grew increasingly upset at accusations flying his way. He began to tear up as the therapist coaxed him. You look sad. Am I misreading you? Then fled to the bathroom. His mother and two of his sisters, immaculate in dress and posture, stayed on the couch, stoic. Another sister and the therapist, and I would guess two or three cameras, followed him. The bathroom wasn't huge, so he was trapped, and the cameras were tight on him. The shot stayed mostly on him in profile, newly expanding torso heaving, the lightly stubbled beginnings of a double chin accordioning as he cried. He held a hand towel over his face, and there was that drama of watching someone so closely as they show you how little they want to be watched. All I care about is like saying yes to my mom and making her happy, he said, trapped in there. He looked up. 
and doing whatever my sisters want to make them happy. And when it comes to the easiest things, they just, they don't, they won't help me. Here he buried his head back in the towel and squeaky cried. The therapist's bony hand was on his ample shoulder. She was kneading him in her enormous pewter bracelet shone in the lighting. In an on-the-fly cutaway to his mother and sisters sitting without him, his mother, stone-faced, said, I like it when he's vulnerable because I think he needs to break those walls down. He's so angry. Watching it, I was struck by how much she genuinely seemed to think she was caring for him, and also how much she was consciously writing him into this sad, angry man-boy, handing him over to the viewers as such. Of course, the next shot was back to Rob, trying to articulate that there are so many things that he wants to do, successes that he should have, that dress sock company that showed such promise, and if his father was alive, his father might understand a little better. The therapist brushed that away, called it a top-layer issue, told him that he had spent too much time running from his feelings, from his very self. You're one of those steam kettles, Robert, she said, you know, sitting on the stove on the fire. You're so full of feeling. Then, on cue, he boiled, the squeaking louder, the wheezing breaths more frequent, burying his face again. I realized that the editors had never fully cut out the transition music, just lowered it so there was a thumping, somber hip-hop beat carrying through the moment like we were in an old ship's furnace, and the panic and the inevitability were all heightened that much more. I've got you, the therapist said, which again towed a line between caring, commanding, and threatening. Come on, let me see your face. Rob obliged, moved the towel, and face exposed, camera creeping even closer, said, nothing matters, nothing's going to change. There was one perfect beat extra, and then a cut. Um, okay, um, so <laughs> I'm going to read um, a, a, a totally different part really quickly before we move on, just to, I don't know, give a sense of the breath or something. Um, <laughs> so, and, and also because, like, you know, uh, I was writing a book about reality television uh, around the time that Donald Trump was running for president, um, and then the book was like out being read by an editor to hopefully be bought, and Donald Trump was elected president, um, and that is a, well, I mean that's that sucks, um, but it also right like it's 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 part of this in a way that, that maybe I don't fully want it to be, and there's parts in the book that make explicit how not fully I want it to be, um, including like an, a terse email exchange between my editor and I in which I refuse to write that much about it. But um, I do think that it sort of emphasizes a lot of the themes that, that in some way the book was trying to think about while trying to avoid him, right? This sense of responsibility as a viewer or this sense of personal pleasure in watching something and, and how that relates to not thinking about anything other than personal pleasure, right? Or all of these things about the sort of the intimate nature of emotion and of voyeurship and then the rest of the world that's out there. Um, and so there's sort of a my version of a postscript kind of thing at the end which manages to, I don't think, ever say his name um, and be pretty non-overt. Uh, but this is something from the end of the book that, that um, I guess, hopefully capture some of that. All I have wanted to do lately is look at you. It feels good to do that. Good because I know your face so well and your body and how each contorts with a different type of movement or mood and how that feels like frankness, honesty, since I know it well enough to trust what I'm seeing and its beauty. Solmaz Sharif's incredible poem, Look, begins like this. It matters what you call a thing. It's a poem about pain and bigotry and terror and the danger of America acting upon the poet's Iranian-American body without looking or looking at her body without seeing her. She traces the 16 seconds that it might take between a button pressed in Las Vegas and a Hellfire missile hitting mazar sharif how casually and quietly our nation can kill a type of person we've decided to name an enemy. Then she ends with this. Let it matter what we call a thing. Let it be the exquisite face for at least 16 seconds. Let me look at you. Let me look at you in a light that takes years to get here. I had forgotten about the poem until I read it in a coffee shop while trying to write about reality television. I was having a hard time focusing, and I was on Twitter, and I was scrolling and glancing and occasionally reading, 
And then Gia Tolentino, a writer I really admire, said that this was the poem that kept her sane in these times, and I wanted to be attached to her attempt, her wisdom, so I read the poem. And I was so moved, I am so moved writing this, tears on my fucking keyboard and all that, literal tears, no metaphor. Look, I want to, look. When I see that word repeated, an invitation, a command, I want to be near you so I can look at you. Maybe that's all I'm crying for. Or worse, maybe I'm crying about the idea of myself looking at you, about the absolving power of intimacy, context fading like fog and wind, even as the poem demands that context be unavoidable. I do believe that the personal is always political, and even if I sometimes waver in that belief, I trumpet it loudly enough to my students that I start believing again. After the election, I handed out photocopies of Arendt's On Refugees, Orwell's Why I Write, held them up as cajoling proof of the power and responsibility of a personal story in a dangerous world. Now I hear myself so often in class demanding the acknowledgement that the personal and political must run hand in hand, but usually my students' responses suggest that the political is a burden to their personal narratives as opposed to an opportunity. The political doesn't deepen what they want to say, it corrals it, it diffuses or defuses. When my students write about love, they want it to be about just that, on the nose, love, and that should be enough. Or loss, just loss, the only story to tell. Or rage, or pain, or triumph. And sometimes that's frustrating, and I know teachers who consider it their jobs to make a student leave class with some diminished sense of his or her own importance in the face of the adult world. But sometimes I think, how can anything feel larger than their own feelings, their own heartbreaks? And in that way, what is intimate, what is entirely theirs to feel, blocks out everything. It's the shadow of an eclipse edging its way across a sun that is every important thing that is happening to and for and with everyone else in the world. All the rest is too bright to look at head on, anyway. And I see myself in them, of course. I return to myself in the poem and the command to look, and I think that I am looking, but when I think of the power of looking, there I am looking at you, and then looking at the idea of myself looking at you. The exquisite face for 16 seconds. A light that takes years to get here. It is so much more than two faces pressed close, lovelit, staring. But it's also that. And there is the shadow of an eclipse edging across the sun. Thank you. Well, at least I, I, I managed not to cry. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the beautiful uh, passages and the, and the incredibly poignant ode to Rob Kardashian. <laughs> one, of, I mean, one, of the, one of the things that um, really struck me about this book, which is really, is really fabulous, um, uh, was, you know, that I think uh, so many people think about reality television as mindless. And, and I actually think that a lot of people watch it in order to not think, right? I mean, it's sort of a replacement life where yeah. you're sort of, you know, you're tuning in. And I have to say, I, I, I don't watch it much anymore, but I used to find uh, that it was very ambient. There was a way in which you could watch it that you couldn't watch Breaking Bad. You have to pay attention to right. a certain kind of scripted television. Um, and, and so, I mean, I really found it remarkable, the sort of, uh, the layers that you um, unpeel. And, and you can't stop thinking when you're watching reality TV. I mean, you're really bringing your full sort of attention and heart. And, and uh, I mean, it's very much sort of a, a, a book about love. Um, as well as, uh, you know, a sort of thoughtful and, and a meditation on self and, and um, performance and all those kinds of things. Um, but I really did not expect to be moved by the, <laughs> the tale of, of Rob Kardashian. I'm glad that it worked. <laughs> so t tell me, um, as, you, as you said, and you, you heard a little bit in those passages, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a letter. It's written in the form of a kind of a letter um, mm -hmm. to your to your wife. Was was that always the intention? What was the original sort of uh, thing that made you start writing it this way? 
Um, th- that wasn't the intention for the book to look that way at all. Um, and I think the book ended up being a lot more personal than I, I think I, I told myself was my intention. Um, and there were some moments where it seemed interesting to play around with the, the address to my wife. Um, and then it just sort of kept feeling like the right thing. And, and then just sort of anecdotally, I got interested in the idea that when you talk to people about watching reality shows, I think m- maybe kind of in terms of what you were talking about in terms of the difference from scripted shows or whatever, like there's a, in the same way that people don't like to talk about drinking alone, uh, there's that sense of like, it, it's a social experience or it's something that is contextualized in an autobiographical and lived way, maybe more than other forms of entertainment. Like when you talk to somebody about whatever their show is, uh, it's like, you know, oh yeah, it was weird. Like I, you know, I broke up with somebody and then I was back living with my sister and we hadn't been close in a while, but I was living with her and then she watched the Kardashians and I was like, what is this? But then I started watching the Kardashians with her and then we'd argue about it, right? Like there's, like there's these sort of things that it becomes social. Um, and I'm generally interested in a writer as trying to sort of make permeable the boundaries between like the text that you're writing about and then like the lived experience of writing about the text and not having the autobiographical and the, the critical be separate. And so I just love that idea of like, it wasn't just like, oh, here's a show that I have something to say about. Um, but it's like, you're watching the show and then you're also living your life watching the show and you're spending hours of your day in some cases watching the show. And part of the way that I think about reality TV in my head is, as a conversation, as a conversation, as part of a lived experience shared with somebody. Um, and so it just sort of ended up feeling more and more organic and I just sort of um, kept doing it until I eventually convinced myself that I could just keep doing it. <laughs> so just to make it a conversation, to keep it in that voice. Yeah, and 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 also there's something I, I wanted to, I realized at a certain point that I, I didn't want to write like detached cultural criticism about reality TV, that I wanted to in some ways meet um, meet the performers at like the appeals of their performance. Um, and so the idea of it being structured as this confession in some ways, and in that weird way that reality shows do when there is like the personal intimacy happening between two people on screen, but then you're like, you're doing this for cameras, right? I, I got interested in mimicking that formally. Right, so you were doing it for this camera. The, right. The reader. Right. Yeah. Well, I, so I, I, we were talking about this a little bit beforehand. I um, was a, became a TV critic at the exact same time that reality TV was born. And so my early years of writing about TV were writing about reality TV, and it was new. And so to me, it was like culturally fascinating right. to be seeing these new forms coming. And I actually, um, embarrassingly enough, predicted that it was going to be it was going to burn itself out in two years because <laughs> it was moving so quickly. Um, and but one of the things that I heard all the time um, was uh, like, you know, that it was really embarrassing to you know as a sort of thinking person to be wasting your time. Aren't you yeah. wasting your time? You wait. And I, I thought it was interesting because the the, the question of shame is very sort of, you know, interwoven um, with so many of the things that you write about in your book, both in terms of your shame in watching it and the shame, you know, like kind of embedded in these shows. Yeah, I think that that's a huge part of it. And I also think that that is part of what makes it actually kind of an active viewing experience. Like, in that, like I do, I understand the sort of ambientness of it, but I also think um, that it can't not be fraught um, and, and I think that perhaps because it is only talked about in ways that you should be embarrassed about, there is a, a, an extra level of activity in sort of emotionally and intellectually when you engage with it than there is in other shows. Like particularly now with, you know, as you want to like, like sort of prestige television moment, right? Like I can, you know, space out and watch the entire season of like some prestige show on Netflix and like feel good about it. You know what I mean? Like, I, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but you, you, you know what I mean, that like... You so, get a pat on the back. Right, like, the, 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 there was something that was traditionally a low form, um, and that part of the conversation with it always had to do with this weird ambivalence that people had interacting with it. And since reality TV has become popular, that's been all like coinciding with the exact moment in time in which every other aspect of TV has been adopted as essentially... Um, right, I mean, how many like TVs, the new novel things, right? So. I, I, th- I think that there is like a, a particular interaction where you have to engage with yourself as the viewer of these shows um, 
and see yourself and question your motives in a way that you don't with really any aspect of popular culture anymore um, that for better or worse I think adds like a real layer of tension to the experience of viewing it that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, and I mean, you also, you you just use the word confession. And, you know, I mean, I, I wondered, because obviously you've written memoir, mm-hmm. um, how how that relates to the kind of sort of memoir and the kind of confession. Obviously, on reality TV, it's structured, right? There's, I mean, there's actually the confessional. I mean, that's part of the format now, is you have to go, no matter what show it is, there's a way in which you go and you confess. Yeah, the room is called that, right? It's like, well, that. yeah, they put you in the place where you're made to, it's like church. And that's, I mean, that's been true, I think, maybe even since the real world. Yeah. Like, they had a confessional room. So, you know, it's like you have the reality of whatever they're filming and that they've chosen to put on the screen, and then there's the confessional that's the really real stuff. <laughs> but how, how does that sort of, how did that in, inform the, the your, your thinking about memoir in this, in this project? Yeah, that, and it also in a way that wasn't really planned, I think the parallels between the kind of writing that I've done and some of what people go through on these shows felt more potent to me than I maybe anticipated it, and, and I wanted to explore that and, and play into that um, and and try to be honest or at least curious about the fact that maybe the kind of work that I do isn't that far away in some of its impulses than reality TV. And I think, again, one of the things that makes reality TV interesting to talk about is that conversation about it is removed from any altruistic intent or any intellectual intent, and the only thing that you talk about is sort of like the nasty human shit of why is somebody doing this. Um, and I think that that's part, <laughs> that's part of writing to me. Um, and, and when I was, to be perfectly honest, when I was, I started writing this book immediately after um, my second book, Lord Fear, came out. And that was the most personal thing I'd ever written. It was talking about like trauma and family shit and addiction and, and grief and all these things. Um, and I was having these, these bizarre twin experiences of being like, what a weird thing to do. Like, why put that out there? Like, what is wrong with me? Why would I do that to myself? Why would I do that to people I love? And then, like, the next minute being like, you know, why hasn't the Times reviewed it? <laughs> you know what I mean, right? And, and, and I think that that, the, the creative impulse or the impulse to be honest or authentic or tell a story that feels important to you or provide something that feels intimate about yourself and the way that that butts up against ambition is a part of writing that is the most uncomfortable to talk about, and I feel like it's being <laughs> performed by reality performers in this blown up way. And so trying to be honest about the ways that I maybe saw my process in that felt interesting or important. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting that the, that feeling of uh, kind of wanting your self-exposure to be recognized. Yeah. Is, I, mean, that's, it, I mean, that is the, the, the kind of ultimate question sometimes, right, about reality TV, and you, you tried to get to the bottom of that in a sense, is like, why why do you do it? Why are, each chapter has a um, a, a little excerpt of, of someone who has written in, was it to casting agents? Uh, there are these big casting websites um, that, that do like, just sort of like spam out all of the casting calls for various reality shows, but then sometimes like before even like writing email to them, like people just go in the comment section and just seem to like throw their thing, like look at me out in the comment section, which I sort of stumbled across. So yeah, like every little chapter has an epigraph that is a anonymous comment section thing about like, you know, five, seven, 130 pounds, you know, used to play this in high school, now I'm a mom, whatever, yeah. Here's my brand. Right, right, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's what's interesting is that it's this weird, uneasy mix of self-exposure, like honesty, and and yet this framing. There's always a framing, right? I mean, particularly at the longer reality TV went on, yeah, the more there was this self-consciousness. And I mean, any any memoir, right? You come to it with a certain kind of framing. Right. It's like a built-in catch-22, right? Like you want to be, or I want to be acknowledged for the craft of writing, but then the farther you the more you talk about the craft of something, the more you talk about the making of something, the less you're talking about the authenticity of sort of pure self that's there. And that um, is something that, again, I think reality TV just, like, there's this double bond when you talk about reality TV, either everybody's an idiot and they're not doing anything, they're just there existing, or they're all liars and they're all bullshitting us and it's all fake. 
Um, and those two things seem almost impossible to reconcile um, when talking about it. Um, but that what's actually happening is this weird and uncomfortable gray area between those two things all the time. Yeah, one of the one of the shows that I've watched all the way through, even though I've, I've basically sort of fallen off the reality <laughs> bandwagon, um, but I, I find the Real Housewives, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about it. Fascinating, but to me, there's a real um, it's a, a a kind of repetitiveness, and and if you actually watch it while thinking about it, um, which you do beautifully, but I, I don't necessarily advise. Um, <laughs> You know, it, there's it's this constant, these ongoing conversations about respect, right? About like, hear my pain. You're mm -hmm. not, you're not reacting in the appropriate way to my pain. Like that's, I literally feel like almost every scene could just be broken down, and it's rehashing these wounds, yep. right? Oh, in a way that you could never do in real life, where you would not have any friends. <laughs> but but they often the these these women often will moderate their behavior yeah. I find right so if they had a season where they were the fans thought that they were too horrible they will often the next season come back and be really boring because they've had so much feedback from the real world like you're an awful person right and then they're too dull and so they're always kind of trying to and now I think it's come around to being it's such a like people are so aware of it and it's such a self-aware form that when some of the people on the shows criticize each other, they'll criticize each other of being like, oh, like there she goes again. She's trying to get more screen time. Like she heard she was boring last season. Right? Like, I mean, it, it, it's it's so open about the fact that about the artifice of it and about the fact that it's sort of commenting back on itself in this feedback loop. But somehow, it still works in a weird way. Like right. it, it like incorporates that into it and then just sort of keeps moving. Yeah. Well, you are uh, you repeatedly. Um, refer to um, Nene, who I think maybe would be fair to say is your patron saint, <laughs> the patron saint of the book. What 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 is so fascinating about about, about so Nene? about I guess Nene Leakes and and um, I think there's something interesting about so, so Nene Leakes is on the Real Housewives of Atlanta um, and is just sort of incredible at being herself, right? I mean, I, I think that one of the things, like, you talk about the fact that these things are repetitive, it puts, like, this weird pressure on the performer. Like, the only thing that she is allowed to be is herself, and the only situations that she is allowed to exist in are essentially the same situations over and over again, often with the same people. Um, and so there's a, this, like, really unique requirement to just, like, show up and force yourself into screen time and force yourself into being watchable and doing it over and over and over again. It's like this constant self-declaration um, that she manages to pull off in ways that I find interesting and, and captivating. Um, and even in like somebody like Kim Kardashian would function the same way, maybe more than anybody, in that like she's pulling off something that has never been done in terms of how long she's doing this. Right? Like you have to watch her. When you watch her, part of what you're watching is like, holy shit, like this is still happening. Like how old was I when I first watched her? And she's doing this, and she's surviving this, and she may always be doing this, right? And we don't know what that looks like yet. So I, I do think that for for performers like that, there, you're, there's like a, the rush of just like, it's like you have to walk into a room with the same people over and over and over again and introduce yourself and have somebody give a shit about you, um, which I just find impressive to do and really interesting. Right, because most of us, our lives are not actually that interesting, and we would if we knew how to make them more interesting, we would. But right, and I don't think that they're like I. I think that's the thing with somebody like Nene Leakes. It's that her life's not that interesting, right? And and ultimately, we kind of know that as people who watch the shows, that it's not like her life is being made more interesting. It's pure force of personality, mm -hmm. like it's pure the way that she presents her life, right? Than than the actual action. It's interesting. My my I think my Real Housewife was always. Um, my fascination was Bethany, who uh, actually uh, once uh, appeared on The Apprentice right. before The Real Housewives, <laughs> and I think it was like the Martha Stewart version of The Apprentice. Um, but, you know, she was clearly someone who was using reality TV yeah. and was very clear in her goals and achieved them, sort of became like a millionaire. Um, and just kind of flips in and out, and I think she has now some new show, you know, and she's just kind of going to continue, you know, in a way very um, baldly building her brand 
in, in you know, with with uh, somebody like Nene or, or uh, Kim Kardashian, it's been a little, it felt more organic, you know, and I sort of like the fact that with Bethany, like, there's no bullshit. You see the strings, it's there, she's... Yeah, yeah. She's but not you, there to make friends. Yeah, but you still saw her marriage fall apart. You know what I mean? Like, like, all, like, no matter what, like, no matter how savvy she is, no matter how much she gets the New Yorker profile, where she gets to be, like, actually smart New Yorker readers, I fooled everyone. Like, part of the give and take is still, she can be aware and savvy and in some ways be bullshitting everybody, but also it demands that she is offering up something and it wouldn't work if she didn't. And the weird negotiation between those two things, I think, is what makes her interesting. Right, and you see the negotiation. Yeah. I mean, I think that's maybe, you know, kind of underlies a lot of what you're talking about, right, is that we're actually, it's like a tease, it's like a dance, where you're constantly kind of glimpsing the edges of something real. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good way to put it, yeah. And yet you can never quite, you can never quite get to it. Or you, you can enough, I think that's mm -hmm. what's interesting, like there's a moment that I write about in the book of watching a, a later season of uh, the Teen Mom show on MTV, which is like a, like a prime example of a show that has like totally incorporated its artifice into itself. And it's now like, A, they're not teenagers anymore. Like they've gone and had like, you know, they've had like horrible addictions that were written about in Us Weekly or aborted porn star careers or all these things, right? And now they're in their mid to late 20s, but are back as the teen moms with their like five-year-old kids who are like totally native to being on TV and the whole thing keeps like groaning forward. Um, but so the show now like a lot of the scenes are just like them arguing with the producers. Like there's no, there's no attempt to not have the artifice be there. And in some ways it can be like really jarring and frustrating, but then it's, you'll watch it and you're like, this is bullshit, this is bullshit, this is bullshit, this is crazy. It's not, they're showing me that it's bullshit. And then there will be like, a 10 second moment in which the mother is freaking out after yelling at the producers and like her daughter goes and finds her and they have a moment together that for whatever reason amid all of that for 10 seconds feels emotionally genuine enough to work and I think it depends on that mechanism which is so strange but also really compelling I think. Yeah you write about, um, I can't remember if you said this is the first thing that you remember of reality TV so you'll tell me if there's another moment but that uh, in Survivor, when there some someone gets badly injured, yeah, the guy falls, the guy falls into a fire. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's I mean it's no. crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's 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 right, it's, and that was that was at the very beginning of what would be considered like the modern modern reality TV boom of, of this millennium. But it was even still that tension between actual danger, actual pain and then the apparentness of all of the things that make that constructed, and then you're watching those two things butt up against each other, and you're being challenged in the moment to somehow have both skepticism and emotional reaction at the same time, and somehow that always happens. Mm. Um, and I think when people say that their reaction to reality TV is only skepticism, I, I don't think that that's true. I think that there's always something happening. Yeah, it feels like uh, a, a lot of reality TV ended up kind of being structured, right, to capture the moment when the person falls in the fire. And, and I mean, I, I I feel like one of my uh, one of my low points, one of the things that I feel really ashamed about is, uh, and I was I was a TV critic, so I had an excuse. I was watching it to to write about it, but I remember watching Celebrity Rehab, the the season that you talk about where like Jeff Conaway is like screaming in agony and you know all of these sort of has-been stars are just I mean in this really unbearable it's like pain. Grotesque, yeah. I mean it is grotesque and my, my husband um, who's a reality TV shamer uh, said you know this is this is like you know uh, like the Roman Coliseum like what are you doing why are you watching this is the most horrible thing I've ever seen and I um, and I feel like now we uh, came across like Naked and Afraid. You ever seen Naked and Afraid? <laughs> Naked and Afraid is all, it's all designed to be, you know, to be those the the worst possible thing that could happen to somebody over the course Even of an hour. Even the two words are like just two things that you don't want to be public. Heard about the show? I mean, they literally put two people who are stripped naked. They're allowed to bring one tool. They don't know each other, and they get dropped in the middle of like you know. Some it's so literal. jungle. It's so literal, and they really. I mean, like we were on vacation and we turned it on late at night, and 
Uh, I mean, there was literally like a woman was so badly burned they had to take her out. I mean, she was like she, you know, I think a fire, like a burning rock fell on her or something. Um, so every week, the whole point. I mean, you'd be very disappointed if somebody didn't get, you know, badly named. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's yeah, it's I, got, I found a new show for you. <laughs> but I mean, it feels like there's an, a level of escalation that, that happens in, in the kind of history of reality TV that you kind of need to keep feeding this sensation. Yeah, I think, I think abs yeah, absolutely. And then, and then that question of like, what is enough? Or what's the next thing that you need? Both what's the next thing that the performer is willing to do? And also what's the next, where the next place that a viewer is willing to go? Yeah, I think that's, that's built into it, absolutely. Do you think that it has infected the way that we as viewers behave? Has it helped sort of restructure our brains? I don't know, that, that's really interesting. I'm sure in, in some ways, um, I think that the, a level, I don't know. I don't know if I can answer that well. I, I, I think it's, it, it has, it has become a stand-in for an explanation of the worst impulse in everything, right? Like, whatever other thing it is that you like, if you say that now we are seeing the reality TV version of that, it has become a really convenient shorthand to say base and disgusting and, and stupid. Um, you know, when you're watching sports, you're watching politics, uh, even when you talk about like a group of friends, right? Or you're sort of like making fun of people's interactions together. It's like it was like this show. And so I, I think it's interesting to think about if that, if the, if the behavior was influenced by the shows or if the, if the shows just sort of become a really convenient way to isolate like our basest qualities and, and blame it on one specific thing as opposed to something that is innate and also is spread over like, I mean, even, you know, with, with Trump, right? Like the easiest thing in the world is to say that he's, the reality TV president, as opposed to he is the racism president, he's the Twitter president, he's the wildly funded propaganda machine president, right? But but something about the idea of reality TV being the explanation for the worst in it um, resonates, I guess. Right. Well, I mean, it seems like you had a, um, you have some really lovely moments where you talk about how, um, how much you long to be able to capture moments in your own life the way that reality TV does, <laughs> right? I mean, it, you know, it's not like we all have cameras following us around, yeah, um, really you know, <laughs> capturing that that perfect that perfect afternoon or that you know or that terrible fight with your life or you know the just things that you they're, they're going to be gone. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things in thinking about reality TV, one of the things that's both terrifying and upsetting about it and also sort of seductive about it is that sense of, right, like, you... Oh, the cat. That's cute. Uh, of, of sort of... There's something incredibly appealing about having this backlog of yourself and your experiences, right? And there's something that automatically feels as though that gains importance or value or can be looked back... Or it, it, it's real because it was captured. Um, and then there's something absolutely terrifying about that. Um, and, I, and I think as a writer with the kind of writing that I do, that, that's, that's often the, the tension there, right? That, that on the one hand, you think that you are making meaning out of something by regurgitating it or reliving it. And then there's also the, what you are giving up by doing that. Um, and again, I, I think it's just a question that reality TV poses in neon lights all the time when you watch it without any satisfying answers, but there's also, like, you have to watch, you have to be thinking, like, would you? You know, would you do that? Would you do that? Do you want to do that? Um, and I'm, that's really compelling to me. So maybe reality TV is actually making you a better person. I, yeah, 100%, for sure it is. For, I don't know about other people, but I'm a very good person because of it. <laughs> well, clearly, clearly, clearly it's worked out okay for you. Um, and it, I mean, it, I mean, the other thing that, that I sort of, uh, I love that you, um, not just that you give, give it credit, but there's, there's a, you talk about the, the sort of humanity. I mean, we talked about seeing things at the edges of reality TV. And, and I think, you know, you, you at one point talk about how, um, how human and muddled 
you know, you, th these characters are, right? I sort of amidst these attempts to kind of create a brand or come in and, you know, make, make this character, um, you get these, these moments that are just like horrifying or amazing where you just see the confusion. Yeah, I mean, I think that people can't help be people. <laughs> Um, and whatever else is built around it and I think that that's something that I've always been interested in as a writer in general right is you like watching somebody or watching a performance or there is the remove of, of being voyeuristic and seeing that thing but then there's also the attempt to see if not the best in it what what feels indelibly human in it and that and and that has that's what interests me about writing generally. Um, and so why not try to do that with, and it's just super interesting that a form that is theoretically supposed to have its origins in humanity stripped down and put on display is also the thing that invites people to see the least humanity in its participants. Um, and I wanted to try to not do that. Yeah, I, I mean, the other thing that was, uh, I'm always fascinated by the logistics of making something look real. <laughs> and I mean, that's certainly that's something that's part of, you know, theater, scripted television, unscripted television. But in reality TV, it's particularly fascinating, right? Because you're supposed to be looking at it and not thinking about the fact that there's a camera in the restaurant yeah. right on top of them. And, and you actually went and sort of talk to people. I mean, you did, you did some, some journalism. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm really curious, um, uh, what, you know, what, what kind of things you, you surprised you about what, what you found about the people who are kind of editing and making all of this stuff look flawless. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, like, so I talked to, well, I talked to Robert Kalinsky, who's sort of like the, the acting coach. And then, <clears throat> Um, editors, producers, uh, a star in one case. Um, it, one of the things that seemed really interesting was that like everybody seemed to feel authorship. Like the producers that I talked to felt like they were wrangling control over performers who were otherwise incoherent in some ways to author the story that would be made of their lives and editors spoke about feeling as though they were the actual storytellers, right? That they were the people that were taking what was otherwise sort of raw data and splicing a narrative into it. Um, and so the fact that like there's at least three or four levels of people who feel like they have the authorial point of view going into one scene, I think makes it super interesting and then in, so you're sort of watching different people who think that they are telling the story and also have the story that they want to be telling and sometimes those are working together and sometimes those aren't working together um and having that sort of that answer kind of come across the board uh actually makes sense in retrospect but was was interesting well at one point i think you say like you know tv wants authenticity but authenticity is it would just be dull i mean they they, they have to work incredibly hard that's so much footage in yeah. order to edit it into even you know uh, i mean i can always tell when a show does not have a good editor you know right. because it's just there's a certain it's like drugs right i mean it's like a hit you need a certain amount of kind of incident uh and you know every you know whatever two minutes or something or you just it doesn't feel interesting yeah you need you need something right I mean every creative form has structures that, that either either the pleasure is in finding something follow the structure or there are these tiny little ways in which that's subverted that's interesting um, and I think particularly now that reality TV has been popular for close to two decades like anything else like it's it's a mature form like we have our expectations it's like when you hear a pop song that you like and you've heard the first verse and you've heard the chorus and you've heard the second verse and you've heard the second chorus and like something in you is like the fucking bridge is coming, you know what I mean? And that's and that's part of the language that you understand. And, and reality TV is like a mature enough form that that's part of it. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's super interesting. And then you see the way that shows are dealing with what could both be predictable, but also pleasurable, or also an opportunity to subvert it. And I think there's no real way of knowing how it'll look in three years. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch it evolve because I do. I, I remember. You know, the first season of The Real World, uh, the the um, the castmates 
complained afterwards because they were really shocked at the way they were portrayed. And they said, we didn't do that. We didn't act that way. You know, we, they set this stuff up. And it was really shocking, I think, to viewers, you know, this idea that they're, and, you know, very quickly that got absorbed. And every, every new sort of incarnation of that, I mean, you know, the other thing I can think of is the ending of the hills. Where they do where the pull back. They pull yeah. back. And, and, you know, which was very meta, really, for yeah. the hills. But they pull back and you, you see the set. And I, I just remember, like, people actually being really shocked. Like, I can't believe, were they actually filming on a set? Like, what what's real? Like, was none of that real? And I think it's also, like, worth noting that the history of anything that even is a gesture towards reality TV was met with horror and derision when it first happened. Right, like when the when the real world first happened, really, there was all this stuff with people coming up being like, "That wasn't what it was." I can't believe they did that to me. Every critical review was vicious, and like you're telling us that this like this is supposed to be coming out of a cinema verite position, and they just put six strangers in a house and say it's verite. Like it does. Like there was, but even like the if people say that the original reality show was the PBS show in the '70s called An American Family that is now talked about as this sort of like authentic ethnography that has been perverted by the genre. The reviews of that show when it came out were terrible. People were horrified about it. They thought it was disgusting. Um, and so part of the tradition of anything like reality TV is looking back and saying there was a better time. What are we doing? Like part of the appeal of everybody is being like, look at our, like, I mean, I talk to producers now who were in some ways nostalgic about the way that the Kardashians were made because that feels so much more substantive and authentic than reality shows that are just coming out now, right? And when the Kardashians came out, people were and are still horrified um, by how much of a perversion that felt like of something like the real world, despite the fact that the same production company did it. Uh, I mean, like, that, that sort of built into it is this, is this sort of like, oh no, remember when we were good people? Like, remember when we didn't lie? Like, that's always been part of the narrative. That's really fascinating. Can you, can you go on a little bit about how the Kardashians were once it was this idea of authenticity um, and I, I went and wrote an article that part of it sort of ends up in the book about a reality TV industry convention um, and this was in 2016 and, and reality TV is in sort of a tough spot and was really freaking out then because with all sorts of things of you know people not having cable anymore and there being like all of these really like slick and well produced scripted shows and also like people on YouTube getting 5 million views for like opening presents like there's sort of like the question of why would anybody watch reality TV anymore and it feels long in the tooth and so they were having this like what are we doing in the industry moment and everything like every panel every conversation was about we need to get back to authenticity and there was a moment that was authentic before this one um, which was bonkers and nuts um, to say that um, and then they, and then it was about sort of defining what authenticity was so they would be like you know, they would use an example of like these, these horrible shows that came out, like the shows that came after Jersey Shore that weren't Jersey Shore, but like had people with Jersey action, accents doing something else. They were like low rent Jersey Shore. And they would be like, these shows were terrible because they were so obviously scripted. Um, so they were inauthentic. Um, unlike when you watch the Kardashians and, and I would be like, well, don't people always complain about those shows being inauthentic and, and scripted? And they were like, well, yeah, they're sort of scripted, but the people are authentic, right? So you can sort of find all of these ways to, to read authenticity into something if you want to. Right, so it, it, yeah. it's like we're constantly rewriting our ideas of, yeah. of authenticity. And, and uh, I actually prize the moment when uh, there was like a little bit of a revolt against that. And you had, if you remember, there's a show called Joe Schmo. Yeah which was a, sh a show, it was a prank show, and the entire show was fake. It was all actors who were all hired to prank one guy who did not know it was fake. And it was actually kind of a beautiful thing <laughs> because it was just one real person and everyone else was so moved in a way by this horrible thing that they were doing. I mean, they were constantly having to kind of consult how to better trick this guy. Yeah. Yeah. But it felt like that was a it was a direction a lot, kind of a moment where um, right everything in, at least involves in some way trying to yeah like what what is the thing that we are going to do to try to make a certain version of authenticity work for people and the fact that authenticity is that malleable and easy to create uh, is terrifying but I think is again what's interesting about the genre well and I mean you know authenticity aside there is a way in which reality TV has uh, a bigger range of people, real people, 
I mean, you know, I think reality TV was the first time that you actually saw, you know, people on television who were poor, right? right. Who were, you know, not beautiful, who had bad skin, who had bad teeth. I mean, it was, it's one of the things that I still find fascinating. I mean, Real Housewives aside, you know, like a lot of reality television is, is I mean, there is a sense in which it's a kind of democratizing. Yeah, there is a, in, in a in some really disturbing ways, but also, yeah, in some interesting ways, yeah, like there's a representational quality to it, absolutely. I mean, do you think that that that, um, that makes it less, I don't know, it's an unfair question, makes it less of a scourge? I mean, I, you know, I, I, and, and I mean that in an ironic way, but. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I don't want, I feel like there was a period in the book or there's a section of the book that attempts to sort of function as like a gesture towards a defense of it as an art form that that kind of falls by the wayside and then just becomes sort of bonkers. Um, so I don't know. Like I, I don't. I don't. I don't know if it's as. In- I think it's it's not interesting. It's certainly not interesting to me to call reality TV a scourge. A scourge, sincerely, right? Right. And but similarly, I don't know. I don't know if trying to make the case for it ethically. Um, works either, right? I mean, I, I think that what's more interesting to me is trying to find like an aesthetic argument uh, for it, and that's the one that isn't made, I don't think. Right, and I think the book makes that argument Excellent. in all kinds of like different and interesting ways. Thanks. So it's a, it's a, it's a letter, uh, in, in some ways, it's structured at least as, a, as kind of an ongoing conversation with, with your, your loved one well, what has been her reaction to? <laughs> uh, oddly generous. <laughs> um, I mean, there's like a part in the book in which she reads an early draft uh, and, and, and gets pissed off when we talk about it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's... Um, she's an actress and part of the book is sort of about her performances and then just sort of both of us as people who want to make art in our own ways and the differences in the way that we go about that. And so I think a lot of what the book talks about is also sort of conversations that we have with each other and, and things that she thinks about. Um, and so maybe because of that, I mean, she's been, she's read like nine drafts of it um, and has been ultimately really, really supportive, which is nice. And does she watch with you? Does she watch all these shows? Yeah. <laughs> so you wouldn't have been able to maintain this. No, hell no. <laughs> well, I think also, yeah, it, it, Sorry, do you want to open up to some questions? Yeah. Okay. Are you ready? Sure. But, yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's just let's let's go for it. Um, yeah, I only read um, an excerpt uh, from the book uh, on long form. It wasn't very long, but it seemed from that that um, you know that your marriage is good and Thanks. that it's working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I was just wondering how you even dared to write about something so impossible as like love that works. Um, yeah, that's a hard question. Um, yeah, writing about something that works is, is way harder than writing about a breakup, apparently. Um, I just, I, I guess it started with a sense of like, on the one hand, it felt really scary to try to write about reality TV in a way that was like literary or serious. And then it also seemed incredibly challenging and scary to try to write about two people that are sort of in like a regular happy marriage in a way that would seem to do it justice. Um, and and the twin scariness of those things felt interesting and, and also just the challenge of being like, I think I have a good marriage, but a lot of that marriage is like, a lot of experience is like sitting and watching TV or if you're not a TV person, like sitting and like, refilling coffee and sitting in silence or whatever, right? Like there are these moments that actually make up a lived experience that are passive and in some ways easy to pretend as like these are the moments that aren't, these are the moments where everybody turns off and then there's like the three good moments a day. Um, And to try to incorporate something that would feel like the least active and also the most embarrassing part of our shared lives in terms of like sitting down and watching TV together for three hours. Um, and to try to find a, a huge part of our love story in that um, 
at least that was able to trick me into thinking like that's its own weird little task to try that I hadn't seen somebody try to do, so I didn't have to think that much about um, the sort of hugeness of it. Also, I've, every book I've ever written I is sort of part personal and part not personal, and I have always convinced myself in every project that it's not a personal project and been like, this is an investigation of something. Um, so I just I lie to myself all the way through, basically. Anybody else? Um, I wonder what you think the experience of the reader will be of a reader who has very, very little uh, knowledge or experience watching reality TV versus one who has as much, if not more, than you. And also the experience of a reader who knows you or to whom you're, you're a complete stranger. Um, all of them will love it. <laughs> um, I, I, I do think, I mean, that's sort of a challenge of it, right? Is I. I yeah, it was trying to think about writing something that would both be covering territory that some people know very well in a way that feels new, and also making something that would seem totally new and incoherent to somebody legible. Um, that, I don't know if I pulled that off, but that, but that was the goal. But that feels like, I mean, I don't know, I, when I wrote a book about baseball, uh, non-baseball fans seem to like it a lot more than baseball fans. So, uh, so, so maybe that's the direction that, that uh, I accidentally err in. I, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I hope that it just feels like a weird enough document on its own that whatever you're bringing into it, uh, it sort of takes over that. But I don't know if it does. Yeah, I would just add, I don't, I don't think you need to... I mean, I, there were certainly plenty of plenty of, uh, you know, shows and characters and, and uh, that I didn't know. I mean, I don't think that it's a requirement to, uh, to watch reality TV. And in fact, I think, you know, in some ways, as I said, I think most people don't necessarily think that hard when they're watching reality TV. So, you know, if, having watched all these shows is not necessarily, you know, going to help you um, sort of do, Think. I mean, you use them as entry points rather than kind of. You know. I mean, for me, I guess look, there's sort of a tradition of writing that I really like. That that is sort of the kind of essayistic writing that is the story of somebody thinking about something. And often, like a lot of the books that I really love, are a, theoretically about a subject that is not a subject that I care about. And then you end up sort of reading the balance between. Then it becomes you're reading about one person trying to understand something better. And so I guess the mechanism is that hopefully the process of trying to understand something becomes, there's like a certain kind of nonfiction that's, I guess, about the question as opposed to the answer. Uh, and, and so that is hopefully um, the tradition that I would hope to be writing in just with a very particular subject. Anybody else? I think that's it. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.